Welcome to the Oasis Unstacked, where we cover NFTs, the metaverse, crypto gaming, and everything in between. Hey everyone, welcome to Crypto Unstacked. And on this Oasis Unstacked segment, today we have Dror Poleg. Some of you tuning in might know Dror from his weekly newsletter that you can find on drawerpoleg.com. But Dror, your work explores the impact of technology on where and how people live, work, and socialize. You are a well-known figure in the real estate industry, but you've taken on many roles globally throughout your career in fields such as private equity and tech. So there's a lot to dig in here. Elle, why don't you kick us off for a great conversation? Yeah, I'm like very happy to have Dror here because I can't remember how I found his newsletter, but when I did, I immediately became obsessed because he writes so well and so concisely about all the trends and things that I was experiencing in my time in crypto and NFTs and even play to earn because I was, I managed to find a lot of threads between his ideas about work with playing the blockchain game Axie Infinity. So I was immediately just like, obsessed with his newsletters. I'm so happy to have Dror here. And yeah, the interesting thing is, as mentioned, you had a background in real estate, so I can't help but wonder, how did you get started in crypto? So first, pleasure to be here, Leslie and Elle, and looking forward to an exciting conversation. So I have to, to already challenge the premise here. I'm kind of a real estate guy, but I was never really a real estate person. Even when I was deeply inside that industry, I arrived to it from like an unusual direction. So I started my career producing parties and designing and coding websites. And at some point, I'll spare you the full story, I found myself in China as a partner in an advertising and digital design agency. This is 2005. And in China during that period, a lot of the kind of biggest businesses were involved in real estate, whether it is building housing or, you know, retail, hotels. And a lot of my clients were companies from that industry. And then one of them kind of sucked me into becoming their full-time kind of head of business development and marketing. And I spent a decade with them building shopping malls and apartments and offices all over China. But I was always kind of like an online media guy first. And even while doing real estate, I always kept involved in kind of the tech world and advised some startups and invested here and there. And even within real estate, my main focus was on building shopping malls and retail, which in China in particular meant staying very, very informed of everything that's happening online. And even at the real estate level, always like looking for new tech and installing things and integrating, you know, location-based services and sensors and mobile payments and looking at whatever the cool young Chinese consumers are doing. <laughs> so I was at the tech kind of uh, background. And of course, from the other side, my involvement in real, estate, in real estate was more on the private equity kind of side, like dealing with large institutional investors, understanding their needs, trying to develop assets that they would find valuable. So, you know, I wasn't like a property manager. I was more of like an investment, an investment type on the one hand and kind of like a consumer expert on the other hand. And I think these two things tie directly into my interest in crypto because in crypto as well, I think on the one hand, there's kind of a strong human social element to it. You know, how does it change people's behaviors? What are people doing? What are kind of like some weird things that are happening in that world that might be relevant to the rest of the world in six months or in six years. And on the other extreme of it, it's all about money and monetary policy and, you know, governance and changes on that front. So it fascinates me from that angle as well. 
for my master's degree, I studied financial history. So, you know, I'm, I'm kind of very familiar with the history and I've always been interested in it. Mm. And even on the China angle, again, like when I was in China, I think even as early as 2012, I had a few friends who were like obsessed with Bitcoin. And I tried to buy some at the time and I couldn't because I was a foreigner in China and I kind of fell between the cracks in terms of, you know, what I was allowed or not allowed to do. But I think once I was in the States in 2015 or so, I started buying some. And since then, I've been kind of interested and kind of following along. And in the last ICO wave, kind of the before crypto winter, I think like 2016, 2017, you know, I was kind of a little more involved and looked at a lot of potential ICOs that tied to real estate. Most of them didn't seem to be too promising to me, but they were interesting to understand. So I started writing about it then, actually. But then we went into winter and I was like, okay, I'm, I'm still going to hold some things that I have, but it doesn't look like so much is happening. And then the last year and a half, as things heated up, I just found all of my existing interests kind of coinciding more and more fully with what's happening in crypto. And my newsletter is basically, has never been about a specific topic. It's always just about whatever I find interesting and whatever I think is relevant to my readers and my readers as well. Some of them are real estate people, but a lot of them, you know, again, like venture tech, private equity, institutional investors, generally curious people or entrepreneurs. So they kind of follow along with me wherever I drag them, it seems. And we're all (laughs) (laughs) enjoying it. Well, that's what makes it fun for your readers. Yeah, I imagine there are a number of things that people are feeling but can't necessarily put into words, right? I think that's the beauty of being a good writer is to kind of penetrate some of these feelings in a way that, you know, reaches a lot of people, including Elle for sure, right? She she talks about your work all the time. And just from miles and miles and miles away, all the way over in the Philippines, she feels very, very connected to kind of your way of thinking, which I think is really beautiful. So I would love to know, What prompted you to write about the great rethinking as we kind of come out of this COVID period and some people call it the post-COVID period? Mm -hmm. How should people be thinking about uh, this concept called the great rethinking, as you put it? So I think, you know, I, I wrote a book about the future of real estate, but actually the book that was published a little over two years ago is really about the future of how people behave, you know, the choices that they make in terms of where they live, where they work, how they live, how they socialize, how they shop, what do they find meaningful. And a lot of the key themes in the book are the things that we're seeing being played out right now. So the fact that people can work from anywhere, the fact that talent is becoming more important than ever and the structure of corporations is changing, the fact that it's no longer just about money, that people are looking for meaning, they're looking for community, they want to be affiliated with big ideas that they feel are making a difference and then work on them rather than just kind of work on a company that's whatever, you know, Facebook or Google or something like that. So a lot of that was already in my book, which again, was about real estate, but it was actually about all of that. And as COVID hit, it hit in perfect timing because my book was just out. And then I was like, wow, all these things that I wrote about are now happening. And actually they're much more relevant to the broader, <laughs> the world rather than the real mm-hmm. estate industry. And the most interesting aspect of what happened in COVID for me was the loosening or, of constraints. So the fact that we suddenly can work from anywhere, or a lot of us can work from anywhere, means that the whole shape of the labor market is changing and the whole distribution of rewards within that labor market are changing as well. So if in the past, companies could only hire from a relatively limited pool of talent, 
even if they were in a big city, there's like 10, 20 million people there only. And suddenly they can hire from a pool of a billion people or two billion people. What kind of new winners and losers does that create? And what kind of opportunities does that create for everyone who participates? So to go back to your question, even someone like Elle, for example, in the Philippines, and I sitting here in New York, the amazing thing is that on the internet, we can connect, we can create value together, we can exchange ideas, even without knowing each other, seeing each other's faces. We trust each other just from the force of our online ideas. We both write and our writing brings us together. And that creates a lot of kind of matches and amazing things that people create and allows people who are creative and who are kind of daring and who are talented to basically reach for the stars. But at the same time, it means that the kind of average person, an average not necessarily by birth, but by effort or just by kind of like courage, who previously just kind of could go to the office and get paid just for showing up and doing kind of something reasonable in terms of output, is suddenly competing with all these amazing people all over the world who are so hungry and so creative and are collaborating with people anywhere. So again, like that American employee is not just competing with like some girl from the Philippines now who has no clue what's going on. He's competing with a girl from the Philippines and some guy in America who are you know going to kick his butt, basically. And that <laughs> changes who gets to win, who gets to lose. But it's not just all good, because it also means that we're all tied into some sort of very intense global competition all the time. So you're not like a winner and then you won. Like you have to constantly maintain your position and reinvent yourself and kind of make sure that you have your own platform and your own distribution channels and your own ways to kind of engage your audience or your customers. And it also means that even your life as a creator, and we're all creators in one way or another because we're trying to reach to people who are customers, we're increasingly dependent on forces that we don't understand and don't control. So, you know, Twitter changes the algorithm. Suddenly, you know, all of my income for the next three months goes away because I can't recruit students for my course. YouTube changes the algorithm, these type of things. So even the winners in this world are basically exposed to forces that previously uh, regular people were not exposed to. So, you know, they were kind of reserved to people who were movie stars or or music stars, so, you know, they either succeeded immensely or mm-hmm. failed and they depended on luck. But it was possible for most people to just choose like a safe, boring profession and stick to that. But today, all professions are becoming interesting and more governed by these economics of superstars for better and for worse. Yeah. And that's like a really fascinating concept in light of your Tina economy piece. And that one is probably my favorite one because it struck so hard. In it, you talk Well, I guess like the first question is like, could you elaborate more on what is the Tina economy and how Mm -hmm. does that affect our risk levels, right? Yeah. So over the past year in particular, we saw a lot of stories in the media about like, quote unquote, young people, you know, oh, young people are buying JPEGs. Young people are doing stupid stuff on Robinhood and buying stocks that nobody likes. Those Gen Zs. Yeah. Young people are like becoming influencers and want to be YouTubers instead of wanting to be whatever, doctors or lawyers and accountants. And the media portrays it as like something kind of frivolous or stupid or like Mm. irrational. But Actually, when you look at the world, you understand that these people are taking on more and more risk because they basically have no choice. So that's I call it the Tina economy because we basically live in a world where all the promises that maybe have been true 50 years ago and maybe even 20 years ago are just not true anymore. You know, you cannot just go study something for three years and then have a career for 40 years working in the same <laughs> job and then yeah. retiring with dignity and in the process also buying a house and paying for your kids' education. 
and staying healthy. The dream. This world doesn't exist anymore. Maybe it exists for some people. It kind of, you know, more and more people are kind of seeing it disappear. But I think when young people look ahead, they know that they have to embrace risk. They know that they have to take on crazy experiments and crazy bets because this is the only way to survive. And they also know that even if they do that, it doesn't mean that they will survive and they're just facing a world with much more risk. Discussed that in the previous question. It's just not possible anymore to say, okay, listen, all of this cool stuff is nice, but I'm just going to choose a safe life. There's no such thing as safe life anymore. Right. Definitely not for the next 20, 30 years. Especially in the context of inflation. We're entering the craziest time in human history. <laughs> and, you know, we just have to remain vigilant and creative and right. reinvent ourselves and be surrounded by people who support us. Right. One of my favorite lines in there was something along the lines of, either you take on risk or you suffer the risk of guaranteed decline. There is absolutely no option to take no risk anymore. And that's why people are flipping JPEGs, just because mm -hmm. it actually gives the level of craziness and volatility actually gives people a shot at paying off the student loans or buying yeah. a house, right? Versus like actually doing the so-called work for a few years and you will get everything inside. That just doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, I mean, it's easiest to notice it with something so simple like our money. In the past, when my parents put their money in the bank, they could save money by just putting it in the bank. Today, if you put your money in the bank, you're guaranteed to lose money. It's a fact, <laughs> mathematical fact. Put your money in the bank, you're basically deciding to lose your money gradually over time. So that option of saying, okay, I'm just going to take the safe option, there's just no safe option anymore. The safe option is to play the game and try to win. Yeah, and you talk about how many people say or believe that embracing risk is a choice. And that's definitely what has been ingrained in me, right? If you decide to take on risk, that is your choice to do so. But in reality, you say young people are not taking more risks. And in fact, they are simply refusing to pay for the illusion of safety. How did you come about to this conclusion? And have you had any type of pushback from people, right? It's a very, I think, like controversial statement. So everything I write about is very, very personal. And it comes from my own thoughts and my own anxieties about my own life. I'm not too old and not too young. I'm 41. So I'm kind of in the middle. And I've embraced risk since I was very young because I think in a way I saw a lot of these things coming. So when I was 20, I knew that there's just no chance that I'm going to stick to the same job and same industry for the next 40 years. And I knew that I had to do my own thing. And I always assumed that one day it will be true for a lot of other people. I didn't know if it would take five years or 20 years for that to become more and more clear. But I always felt that I have to be completely reliant on myself and always be able to reinvent myself and to generate an income for myself without depending on someone, you know, paying me a salary and suddenly deciding that I'm not valuable anymore and leaving me to try to figure out what I want to do. Which is why even in China, when I was in real estate and employee of a giant company, I always kept investing on the side and doing stuff on the side and advising and writing online and building an audience because I can't sleep at night unless I know that I have that hedge, that I have mm -hmm. that direct access. And that ties into my history as, you know, like a, a European Jew with both grandmas that survived Auschwitz and both grandparents that were slave laborers during the war. And mm -hmm. I'm used to losing everything. And then after the war, my father found himself in communist Romania. So they lost everything again and came to Israel. And even in Israel, we had to keep fighting to just have our own piece of land. And, and even today, it's a very controversial place. And, you know, we have to kind of keep arguing, explaining ourselves. And 
some things are okay and some things are not okay. But at the end of the day, people live there and it's their home and they have to fight for it. So I always felt I have this kind of uh, existential anxiety that I feel I don't trust any institution to protect me or save me. It's kind of ingrained in my DNA. But on the other hand, you know, I'm not like an extreme libertarian and like I want to have a government. I want things to function. I believe that good public services are important. But I also know that these things can turn on you and that you have to be ready. And even maybe more importantly, that in order to keep the government honest, it's important to have alternatives and it's important to have power in the hands of individual people. And by power, I don't mean guns. I mean, you know, the ability to make financial choices, the ability to move when you like, the ability to switch jobs when you like, to have a safety network that is not completely dependent on large institutions that don't change very, very quickly. In terms of pushback, I haven't really gotten a lot of it. The strongest pushback I get is kind of denial. People that are saying, oh, this is really interesting. You know, obviously it doesn't apply to me, but like, (laughs) it's nice what you write about. Okay, I'll think about it. But even that is changing over time because more and more people are kind of coming to those realizations. Yeah, I just lost my job and I thought I had everything set and it's not. Or like I am in my job, but actually I don't believe in what the company is doing and I can't imagine doing it for 20 years. Or my 401k is all in like a you know, 40% bonds or whatever. And other people are making lots of money and I feel like I'm kind of falling behind here. So what else can I do? So one way or another, people come back to this realization that to just keep up, you have to take risk and definitely to pull ahead, you have to take even more risk. And I love how you define it as the illusion of safety because when COVID happened, Personally, for me, I was laid off and it definitely felt like a crack in the facade in the illusion that, yep, nothing is safe anymore. And so I think for most of people in my generation or around my age, a lot of them had recently graduated from college at that time. And they still have friends who and family who are graduating from college right now. And right now, there's just like absolutely no illusion that anything is safe, right? There's still COVID. There's still... It's so hard to get like a job that won't require you to come in to work and pays you well and isn't like absolutely overworking you to death. There's just really no sense of safety. And I know that personally for myself, when I read that piece, it immediately struck me because I didn't really feel... It took like a volatile journey in crypto to feel like I was safe or the idea that I would be safe. Versus pre-crypto where I absolutely felt like there was no floor under me, that I have no safety blanket and I'm like looking at like an endless tunnel and it took like a crazy, volatile, risky journey through crypto to actually feel like, yes, there will be a light at the end of this tunnel for me. And I know that a lot of my friends also feel the same way because like they suddenly can now actually afford houses, afford land that their parents could Mm -hmm. not. And it's actually suddenly not reachable, but yeah, we're taking insane amount of risks that like if I tell my parents or I try to explain things to my parents and they absolutely cannot fathom it. Yeah. I mean, even for me, when COVID hit, you know, I was already kind of running my own business, but a lot of my work is paid speaking all over the world. And suddenly everything got canceled and it pushed me to kind of double down on the online things that I'm doing, you know, to build a new online course, to try to depend even more on myself and not on kind of like any specific type of customer to try to depend more on my audience rather than like some big customers that invite me once a month and pay me a lot of money to have more of an income stream that depends on, you know, things that I do every day with thousands of people rather than with a few individual companies. And also what I saw other people going through during COVID 
pushed me even further to want to become more independent. So I wasn't suffering from these things, but I was seeing people, you know, like you said, oh, suddenly, oh, next week you have to come back to the office and this is what you have mm. to wear and get the vaccine, put a mask, do this, do that. And again, I'm pro, I'm vaccinated, I wear masks, I'm obsessed with masks actually. Uh, that's <laughs> legacy of my time in Asia. <laughs> you know, I was wearing masks with, before COVID even arrived to America, I think. But still, I don't want anyone to tell me what to do and definitely mm. not an employer to like tell me, okay, well, how am I supposed to behave now? It just seems so extreme to me. So I'm happy that I have this privilege to decide for myself what I wear and how I behave every day within reason. And I know that this privilege comes at a cost and the cost is, is a certain level of risk and uncertainty. But at least for me, I think if I'm seeing the risks clearly in front of me, I sleep better at night because I know that I know what's there. Mm -hmm. If I kind of don't see the risk, then I'm afraid. Mm. I always tell my wife, I like to sleep close to the edge of the bed because then I know that the edge is there and I'm <laughs> never going to fall. I, I like to hold it in my, you know, I like to feel the edge in my hands and then I'm safe. Some people like to be away from the edge and kind of assume that it's not there and then they kind of roll over and fall off the bed by accident. But I like to be Ooh. intimate with the edge. So <laughs> what an analogy there. <laughs> the yeah, best part is true. Drew explains the risk. Drew explains what the edge of that bed looks like for the rest of us with his newsletter. Everyone is and welcome. Yeah. The bed is uh, wide. <laughs> the bed is very wide and very the cliff is very deep, I guess. But yeah, you. this ties in the idea that you want to be independent, I guess, ties very well into the idea of the Ponzi career, right? You yep. once wrote that the future of work is a pyramid scheme where every person sells his favorite person to the next person. Could you unpack mm -hmm. that idea? Yeah. So starting 20 something years ago, there was like a famous, uh, like David Bowie basically decided to issue bonds in his name, like to let people invest in his future cash flow from his royalties and other things that he does. And back then, it was a unique thing that only someone like David Bowie could do. You know, he had to be famous and there were a lot of legal costs and he worked with a couple of large investment banks to do it. And he did it because he understood that, you know, his life is risky as an artist and he preferred to get money in his hand today and to share it with people who are not as talented or as daring as he is, but that still want access to some kind of income stream that is alternative and doesn't behave like stocks and bonds. And why not share that risk? Now, what crypto does, among other things, is it dramatically lowers the transaction costs of doing something like that. So it allows any type of person to suddenly issue shares, to issue smart contracts that are quite complex in terms of promising people all sorts of things based on all sorts of events that will or will not happen in the future. And we started to see people basically doing that, like young entrepreneurs that are saying, hey, I have an idea or I want to move to San Francisco out of France or the Philippines or something, and I need people to back me, basically. Come invest in my future, give me money to follow my dream, and then I'll share with you whatever it is that I'm going to make for the next five years or 10 years up to a certain limit. And crypto allows you to actually structure that, especially if the business itself that that person is building is on crypto. So you can really tie it together nicely. And what that means is that one, I can suddenly invest in people that I believe in, but also once I become a token holder, let's say I, I believe in L and I want to invest in her, which is true. Once I become a token holder of L, I'm not just a shareholder, but also I now have an interest to make sure that L's, the token value of L will go up all the time. So I actually want more people to want to buy into her. So I want to market that coin. I basically want to shill <laughs> that coin to other people, which means that ultimately 
at some point, if it gains enough momentum, I'm making money, not because Elle is actually generating revenue from her talent, which was the original reason I bought it, but I'm generating, I'm making money because other people believe that she will make money and want to buy the token. So it becomes a completely speculative thing where in the end, even if she doesn't do anything, I can make a lot of money and people can just, just keep buying it because it's kind of a feeding frenzy. And to a certain extent, I think every person will become something like that. Like we're all becoming financial instruments that people back, whether explicitly or implicitly. And then those people have an interest to keep promoting us and promoting the value of our token, which means that our whole career becomes some sort of a a Ponzi scheme. (laughs) So, yeah. (laughs) How important is or are the elements of storytelling and personal branding in what you call 21st century business unit, right? And in that future of work where the person, the individual is where the investment is being made. How important are these two elements of storytelling and personal branding? They're super important. I mean, one, just from a business perspective, we live in the age of narratives, right? People are looking for meaning. People are looking for stuff that resonates. People want to belong to something. They want to believe in something. They want to take sides. And we've seen that over the last few years, both obviously in business with people like Elon Musk or even kind of traders like Warren Kitty and others that, you know, the audience wants to see how you do things, why you do things to understand you, to relate to you, and then they'll follow you through thick and thin just because they're in your camp. And we've even seen that in politics. Trump is basically the first kind of crazy influencer that became president just by having a Twitter account, even though nobody else wanted him to be heard because he was so ridiculous and controversial and he knew how to game the system and play the medium so well that even to those who hate him, he was irresistible. You know, they had to repeat his message. They had to give him to amplify whatever it is that he was tweeting about because it was so raw. It was so emotional. It was so full of character, like terrible character, but like it was full of character. It was like so entertaining. You couldn't keep your eyes off it. So we're seeing that on that front. We're also seeing that just at the employee level, people increasingly want to work for companies that they feel like mean something, that they're working on something important or that the founder believes in something that they believe in or that in a way our companies starting to replace our more traditional churches and synagogues and communities and even families. And that's been happening for a while. But now there's kind of a backlash against that is taking it further into that direction. But basically people are saying, hey, you know, Google, actually, you're not my family. Don't tell me you're my family if you're not taking care of me when I suddenly actually need something or that you can fire me. So now I want my company to be my family. I want my business activities to be more like a community. So I'm going to build communities that are run for business, but basically align the incentives of everyone that participates in ways that is a little more similar to a traditional community. So a lot of the stuff that we see now with uh, distributed with DAOs and other types of crypto ventures that are not structured like typical corporations They're very kind of cutting edge and futuristic, but also they're much more similar to society before the Industrial Revolution than they are to the modern world that we have today. And I'll use my Jewish heritage as an example. 300 years ago in Europe, all Jews knew how to read and write because they had their own institutions that taught kids, that educated kids, and they were supported by communities and everyone put down their money. Not everyone was wealthy. So the wealthy people kind of covered up for those who needed something. And they were kind of, insurance or risk pools that the community maintains. So if suddenly someone needs help, then people take care of him. And then when he's doing well, he's going to take care of other people. Or if someone passes away, then his family is taken care of. And if people need food, 
they get that as well. And we had all these kind of communal institutions where people's interests were aligned. And there was some sort of, in Judaism, we call it like a covenant between people, you know, not a contract, but like a strong commitment to, you know, the values that we have and vouching for each other. And in a way, in the modern world, a lot of institutions emerge to undermine these things. So whether it is the government suddenly taking on a lot of social responsibilities, some of it for the better, of course. And on the other hand, the market itself. So corporate organizations coming up and kind of giving us all sorts of things that we used to get from our family and giving us that safety net or the food or like whatever we need that suddenly became a consumer activity, something that we buy from someone. And we lost something in that process. And I think crypto is looking for ways to bring it back as well, to kind of tie people together into arrangements that are partly financial, but are not purely financial. And that have some rules, but the rules are kind of more directly governed by the community rather than just suddenly having a giant government that decides stuff that I think people increasingly feel that is too far away from them, even if it is important and necessary. Yeah. I mean, that describes a lot of like the profile picture, social clubs that emerged over the summer, right? I'm like thinking when you talk about like family, I'm really thinking about how the Bored Apes Yacht Club, which is uh, one of the earliest summer and most notable profile picture NFT projects that came out. And yeah, they have like this whole hashtag that they generated about like bored apes, follow other apes. And the social rules weren't ever set by the ones who dropped the NFTs. They were just mm-hmm. created by the community and these organic buyers. And they just ended up, the community just ended up being so strong that they generated such massive interest mm-hmm. that within a few months they were being auctioned by Christie's or Sotheby's, one of those premier auction houses. And it's kind of crazy when you think about it. It's been like less than a year and they already like garnered that much attention, right? And Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, it's like this fascinating thing where where I guess like the intersection of business and fun and upside, Mm -hmm. but also like the Ponzi-nomic, Ponzi (laughs) career, right? Like I have bought into the club. (laughs) I need to make the club good. And I need to talk about the club everywhere. So that's going to be my profile picture. I'm kind of having fun, but like also kind of creating this sense of value so that my NFT, that my share goes up. Yeah, you know, I mean, people think that NFTs are about art and about speculation, but I think they're actually about community and kind of social incentives. Yeah, they're about social capital. And about speculation as well, (laughs) of course, but (laughs) they're not just about speculation. And again, it doesn't mean that a lot of them will not end up badly, but it does mean that they're experimenting with very interesting tools that we can think about as a society and and I think have much broader implications. And that's what makes them fascinating. And to your comment about Christie's, even this reminds me of Trump a little, because again, the NFTs became so hot that the established institutions could not help by but jumping in and, you know, amplifying them because they're so terrified. They suddenly mm-hmm. feel, hey, are mm-hmm. we falling behind? Are we missing out on something? Mm-hmm. What are the kids doing? Let's just let's just do it. Let's participate. Let's do something with it. And that shows you that they're feeling all this risk as well, that, mm-hmm. you know, as powerful as they seem and they look like gatekeepers that are completely necessary to the process. But I think they understand before we do how kind of fragile their position is. And they understand that the world is changing and that they kind of, they're scrambling to stay relevant. So an encouraging signal. Yeah. And as we kind of close out here, this last part of our conversation, we'll love to dig in deeper on some of the elements that you talked about in your most recent piece called Clones and Colonization. And uh, you really drive from the point that 
the most valuable resources in the 21st century are human creativity and human attention. And that's not necessarily something that we would attribute to, I guess, the innovations in the 21st century. Mm -hmm. But today we are in the attention economy after all, right? That phrase has been coined many times over now by different people. But these are the elements that we need to run with. Like these are the roots of value, I would say, in the 21st century. So yeah, we'd love to have you unpack that a bit more for us. So basically we mentioned that, you know, we're more more and more people are going at it alone. They're trying to build their own brand, their own audience, their own distribution channels, to build a course, to build a trading strategy, to do whatever, but something that is kind of much more personal. So the basic business unit these days is the individual. It's not the corporation anymore because a single person can can basically generate immense firepower by leveraging all sorts of tools, by automating, by having a community that helps him and supports him. But what this means for an individual is that suddenly, because you are using your identity, because you are using your personal narrative, because you're being so open, in a way, your own perception of yourself and who you are is being shaped suddenly by market forces because you start finding yourselves responding to your followers, changing yourself in order to fit whatever it is that sells best. And it's one thing to be an employee in a company and then go home and kind of take off your uniform. But it's a completely different thing to be a creator online where, you know, this is who you are. And you don't even notice sometimes how these incentives from your own followers and own customers basically shape your behaviors, shape your beliefs, which means that I think we'll see increasing demand or increasing desire among creators to create all these pseudonyms for themselves and parallel identities that they can use to separate their actual soul (laughs) and their business uh, soul. And also just as a pure business thing to make a bet on multiple different personas rather than on one. Because in this world, with all the risks that we discuss, you never know what's going to hit. You never know what's going to work. So if you have five faces, you're more likely to, to strike gold with one of them rather than if you just stick to one persona. And again, in a world where you know, machines can do more and more. So you know, really what is left for us to do as humans is either to be really, really creative and come up with cool ideas or empathize with each other in ways that machine cannot. And on the other hand, we remain as consumers, basically, to give our attention to different things. And both of these things are super valuable. And the economy is kind of pushing us to extract as much value as possible out of them. But again, as we do that, we need to be careful not to lose ourselves in the process. And I think that's where pseudonyms and alternative identities come in to help us do that and still stay human in the process. This is it's like getting a little philosophical here, but. Uh, I think it's relevant for anyone that acting online and everyone feels it somewhere. Yeah. And, and you talk about this person, Fernando Pessoa. Is that how you say mm-hmm. his yeah. last name, this Portuguese poet? How did you, mm-hmm. I guess, come across his name in particular to talk about him as an example for this? So I've been, I've loved his poetry for 20 years and I always felt very kind of connected to it. He's kind of an eternal stranger, you know, he always he never feels like he belongs. Even his own feelings is kind of skeptical about. He always sees both sides of an argument or five different sides of an argument. It doesn't feel terribly attached to either of them. He's kind of an, an, a curious person before anything else. He's not eager to be part of a group, to take sides. He just kind of wants to understand and see the beauty and even the entertainment in how people interact with each other. And I always felt very close to that. And I think that's maybe what makes my writing appealing I don't love picking sides. You know, I'm just interested in everything. I just want to understand all angles of things. And I'm just infinitely curious. And a big part of his work was that he chose all these kind of 
separate personalities. And each of them wrote poetry with different styles. Some of them wrote books. Some of them wrote reviews of each other's works and published them in newsletters or wrote letters to the editor about them and argued with each other. (laughs) And his day job was kind of a clerk, an accountant in some trading firm in Lisbon. He would go to the office and just sit there with his suit and his glasses. And I always found that there was something like very romantic about that. So kind of like, I don't have to like wear a crazy t-shirt or cut my hair or pretend to be like a, you know, a unique and original. He was like original on the inside and he didn't care about yeah, I just look normal, but like inside my head, I have an amazing world that is so rich. And then when I looked at the apes and, the, and all the pseudonyms and all the privacy or kind of at least partial anonymity that is enabled by crypto, it just felt so relevant. And it just brought back all these ideas. And also he, he lived a hundred and a bit years ago in an era of immense technological change as well. So the late 19th century, early 20th century. And a lot of his work is a response to these technological changes that kind of change what it means to be human, that kind of turn work into something really industrialized and kind of turns humans into like these industrial inputs that, you know, you just put in a factory or in an office and keep them there for 10 hours a day. Mm-hmm. And his personas were a way to remain human in such a world. So even though he could not take off the suit and avoid the office in the real world, he could write about it and kind of develop these personalities elsewhere. And in his case, all of this work was discovered only after he passed away. He left everything in a huge trunk in his apartment. But today you can do that while you're still alive because you can have these double lives on the internet, which is wonderful, I think. So, yeah. Yeah, what a character, (laughs) this guy. And I would maybe put him in the category of OG side hustlers, right? That phrase didn't exist, of course, back then. But understanding how to really optimize like your own value, right? Whilst being told what you are worth, aka your market price, right? Your salary. And instead kind of just turning it on its head and saying, great, this is just one input in what I value myself as. And then kind of thinking about other ways to expand and optimize your value in parallel, like you write about, right? For this guy, Fernando. I mean, that's- I'll give you an example. Like even the conversation we have today and where we started, We started with like, oh, you're a real estate guy. So how come you're blah, 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 blah. How come you're interested in this? All these definitions, I find them so revolting, you know. And I think most people live their lives like that. They're like, oh, I'm this. So obviously I cannot do that other thing. And I'm not allowed to be interested in this thing. And I'm not allowed to speak about that. And most people actually believe that about themselves. They don't follow their curiosity or they feel like, okay, I have this thing that when people ask me, what do you do? So I give them an answer. And obviously I'm not allowed to say anything too complicated or have three different answers rather than one because (laughs) the whole world will collapse. And all my life, I've always resisted being in such a box. And I think that more and more people are starting to feel that way as well. Yeah, strip away the labels, create your own narrative, continuously redefine yourself, right? I guess these are kind of some key lessons here throughout your writing. Good reminders, yeah. Pessoa wrote one of my favorite sentences for him. The only way to be in agreement with life is to disagree with ourselves. (laughs) That's great, that's great. It's not just that I don't want to define myself for other people. Even for myself, I'm not like, I'm just arguing with myself all day. I'm exploring things. I don't need to decide who I am. If anything, I'm a writer, you know, and then I can throw whatever I want into that and write about whatever I want and change my opinions. And... Yeah, and everyone should do the same. That's fantastic. And it's easier than ever. You can just easily make a Twitter account, refuse to show your face, and everybody complies in crypto. Nobody questions <laughs> it. No, you, I mean, Packy, my friend Packy McCormick wrote it really beautifully. It's kind of a piece that, that helped him edit as well. 
Every tweet is a lottery ticket. Everything you put out online is a chance to suddenly be discovered by someone, to connect with someone that you're going to build something together, to build a new friendship. And it's free. You can buy as many as you like. Just go and throw your ideas out there in any medium that mm. you like. And ideas can be anything. It's just, not just a tweet or a selfie. It could be your trading strategy. It could be an algorithm that you develop that you put on GitHub. You know, it could be all sorts of things. It's all content at the end of the day. And it's all something that you put out there and then can suddenly be leveraged in, in unimaginable ways. I think most people still don't understand how powerful the internet is and how deep it is and how many people there are out there who are interested in anything on earth. Like I talk to other creators and people teach stuff online that you would never imagine that anyone would pay for. But there's always someone who's interested in it. And even if a hundred people already told the same story, someone wants to hear it in your own voice and the way you tell it. And Mm -hmm. it's infinite. Yeah, I think this segues beautifully to the last point where we want to give you the opportunity to talk about this really cool, exciting course you're designing uh, about crypto, NFTs, and DeFi for grownups, as you call it. Please shed some light on this. This is really awesome. So throughout my career, I always lived between multiple worlds, between tech and real estate and between China and the West. And I always help people kind of bridge the gap, like cross and understand the other side. And I felt that a lot of my work in real estate was about helping people from a very established, very big, very powerful industry to understand a lot of new technologies, a lot of new financing models, a lot of new strategic frameworks. And even though there was a lot of material about that out in the world, they never understood it until they got to me. I kind of made it accessible to them, made it safe and comfortable to talk about it, to ask questions. Oh, absolutely. And your writing is so good. And help bring people together and... uh Bring that 22-year-old entrepreneur with that 60-year-old private equity real estate executives and put them in a group and send them to make some assignment together. And then they both come back and are really happy. And they're like, oh, I never knew that I would get along with someone like that. And I feel that in crypto, there's a potential to do something similar. There's so many people in established industries, again, private equity, finance, real estate, architecture, and law, that are interested in crypto, that feel like there's something there. But then you either go to like mainstream media and it's like very superficial or it's bullshit or it's like kind of like anti-crypto or you try to discover a lot of the material that is generated within the actual ecosystem, but it's not very accessible. Even just to find it, it's, it's sometimes in all sorts of weird places. And it's written by people that are kind of, it's inside baseball, basically. They're writing to other people like them. There's a lot of jargon. There's a lot of kind of implicit assumptions about what people already know. So you start reading and after two sentences, you're like, okay, I have no, <laughs> no idea what you just said. <laughs> I'm just going to give up. And, you know, like when I look at Elle's Twitter feed, you know, sometimes I understand and sometimes I'm like, all right, like what, what the hell was that? Like what language was this? And uh, I want to create a place for people to come and learn about crypto, understand its promise, understand its limitations, see all sorts of case studies, and hopefully be able to take that back to their industry or their career or their individual investment portfolio and say, okay, now I can play the game a little bit. I know the language. I know some of the tools. I understand some of the possibilities. Let me explore further and help convert more people <laughs> so, uh, so that this thing could be adopted and make a positive impact on the world. So the course is called Hype Free Crypto. And again, it's not necessarily for crypto people. It's more for people who are on the outside who want to learn, but also for people on the inside who want to socialize or kind of get into discussions with people in existing industries and understand what are their needs, what are their problems, what are they trying to build or solve? How can crypto help them? Yeah, so that's what I'm building. Yeah, and that's pretty exciting because you just like have an absolute gift for being so 
concise with your writing and your ideas. And yeah, I can tell that the course is going to be good. Are you going to be issuing NFTs for your course students? I feel like you Maybe. should at this point. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get everyone set up with wallets first, right? Yeah. First point of action. One that of the things we'll do in the course, how right. to open a wallet, how to trade a little bit. But it's less about trading. It's more about understanding the tech, but I want them to kind mm, of mm. get some hands-on experience. Too. I think when you use, for example, when I use Uniswap on, for the first time, it just blew my mind. Yes. The fact that like there's a liquidity pool and I can trade between two different, very exotic kind of instruments and someone yes. is providing me liquidity and it happens instantly. Mm. It just blew my mind. And I think when people feel that and use it. And the store is open 24-7. Yeah, they're going to feel the same thing. They're going to be like, what? This is amazing. So I want to share that feeling with people. Crypto is like the biggest, coolest, most exotic shopping mall out there right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You should like, first lesson is like teaching your students to make a MetaMask wallet. And then you give them like an NFT, like an enrollment NFT or something. Mm -hmm. And that's the only way they can access like future lessons or something. Mm -hmm. I like that. For all the fun you could do with your course, but it's about time Jor makes NFTs. Love it. I was actually thinking of doing a series of Pessoa NFTs with all these different personas and different oh. faces. We should build it together. Sure. I'm not that Don't let any of our listeners uh, do it before us. You just get front run. <laughs> well, I'm putting my hand up. I'm in line for that one, Drawer. Sounds good. <laughs> Make sure you contact oh, me. Oops, I see they're already sold out. Awesome. I just launched and that's it. They're gone. Dang, <laughs> things go this fast, huh? Yeah, there's an aftermarket though, so you know. And I'm pretty sure it's going for already cool. like 3x, the mending price. <laughs> <laughs> well, Drawer, this has been such an awesome conversation. I know our listeners are going to really enjoy being introduced to your work if they haven't already come across it. But I know it's a special treat for Elle and myself to just, yeah, speak with you for an hour and unpack your ideas, right? Because through your writing, even though it's concise, I know there's a lot more thoughts that are kind of backing and supporting the very short pieces of writing that you put out. So really appreciate your time today for being on Oasis Unstacked. And who knows, maybe we'll have you on again soon, or maybe your friend Packy McCormick can also come on and vibe with us uh, about all things crypto and NFTs. Yeah, love it. Sounds good. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Leslie and Elle.